Today we are going to press forward. If you're new here, we are in the book of Matthew in chapter 5, and we're looking at this idea of being a city on a hill. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to pick up where we left off in just a moment. Back in 2015, there was a building that opened up in New York City. It was at 432 Park Avenue. And 432 Park Avenue became very famous as it was being constructed because it is the largest, most expensive residential tower in the Western Hemisphere. In fact, I have a picture of it that's going to come up on the screen, and this tower is in Manhattan, and it's over 1,400 feet tall. It's 96 stories high. It cost $3.1 billion to construct, and it was just this marvel in New York City because it had these iconic views from all of these different places. There wasn't a bad condo in the tower, and because of that, New York's finest and wealthiest, of course, started putting in their bids. Some of these condos in this tower were sold for well over $100 million a piece, and it filled up quickly, and it became the place for the who's who of New York City. And people would drive past this tower in Manhattan, and when you look at a tower like that, we all think the same thoughts. We think, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice to live like that? But what's funny is the reason I heard of 432 Park Avenue is because apparently it's not that nice. In fact, there's a lawsuit right now against the developers for $250 million for different defects on the building. Because what they found out in the last few years, a lot of complaints started to surface where residents were complaining of leaks and leaks that led to floods of elevators that wouldn't work, where they were getting trapped inside of them. They were complaining about a trash chute that apparently sounded like a bomb every time it went down. There was literally an electrical explosion in the building that left someone harmed, and it led to this massive lawsuit with an investigation that tied into it, and the residents found over 1,500 mistakes in that building. 1,500 design flaws and defects in the construction, which is now leading to a $250 million lawsuit. Now, I bring up that picture because I think it's a great picture for us to remind us of a fact that things aren't always the way they seem. That sometimes we look at people's homes and we think they have it all together, but the truth is oftentimes when you look a little closer, there's a lot of problems inside. And especially in a city like Austin, it's easy to look at our neighbors' homes and think everything's okay. After all, we live in one of the fastest growing cities. We live in an affluent city filled with a lot of movers and shakers from all around the world. We have people that lead in their industries. We lead in creativity. And home prices keep going up and it's easy to think it must be nice for him or her, and we look at these homes. But if you look at them a little closer, I'm going to warn you. What you'll find out is oftentimes there is a whole lot of brokenness inside those homes too. That there's marital brokenness. There are couples that are at war within their homes that struggle. They feel like roommates, not husband and wife. There's brokenness within relationships Parents struggle to figure out, how do I parent my kid? How do I keep him, and her, him or her on the right track? There's mental health problems, as Rick even alluded to, that I've learned that one out of three Americans right now struggle with mental health. There's substance abuse 
problems. There's brokenness in that sphere. Some have argued that up to 40% of our country either struggles with substance abuse or misuse. There are problems inside homes left and right. There's health problems, brokenness, where people are dealing with ailments that no one even knows about, where they're dealing with the grief of a loved one no one knew of. There are all these problems inside homes. There's all of this brokenness. And church, we know the person who can fix it. Jesus Christ can fix people's homes. We're not worried about the plumbing, the electrical, and those defects. We're worried about the spiritual makeup of people's homes, their eternity, their hearts, their minds, their soul, their strength, their devotion. And Jesus Christ can change people's hearts, and he can consequently change homes, which change neighborhoods. You might say, how do we do it? What you're going to see today is it actually starts with you, with you. Jesus Christ has called us to be a part of his work to light up our neighborhoods. And so often we see the problems of Austin, Texas. It's rare when we see ourselves as part of the solution. And today, that's what Jesus has for us. He's going to tell you that he wants to light up your neighborhood. But the way he's going to extend that light is through you, if you're willing to bless every home. So if you have your Bible, join me in Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We'll start there, and then we're going to pivot. But in Matthew chapter 5, familiar text that is the base of this series in verse 14, Jesus tells us, you, followers of Christ, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus says, we, followers of Christ, are the light of the world. And why does he call us light? If you were here a few weeks ago, it's because God put a light into our hearts. You remember Romans chapter 116, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power, the dunamis, that word of dynamite. It is the dynamite power of salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. At the moment of your conversion, you received a spirit of power into your heart that lights up your life and changes you. And God calls us the light of the world because he's put his light into our hearts. And then he says, we're going to look a certain way. He said, a city set on a hill can't be hidden. Jesus says we're actually made to shine as a city, which I think that's so interesting that he calls his followers a city because the truth is we all live in another city. We all live in the greater Austin area, but Jesus says you're actually also part of a greater city. And what is that city? In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul explains that regardless of even if you were born in Austin, Texas, if you're in Christ, you are a dual citizen. Because he tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that, yes, we belong to an earthly city, but hallelujah, we're part of an eternal one that is imperishable. That our true identity, our identity and citizenship belongs to a greater city. 
to the kingdom of God. And consequently, we now shine and we look different, Jesus says, when we walk in this earthly city because of our citizenship to our heavenly one. And the truth is, most of this city is not a part of that heavenly city. Most of it is not. In fact, there's troubling research even here locally. Local demographic researchers, they discovered that within 10 miles of just this church, where we are, which we're not the entire city of Austin, but within 10 miles of this church, only 36% of our neighbors are strongly involved in their faith. 36% of your neighborhood, if you live within 10 miles, is actually strongly involved in any form of faith, meaning they haven't received the light into their hearts. George Barna did some research back in 2019. I shared a little bit of this a few weeks ago. What he was studying was what he called post-Christian cities, meaning metropolitan big cities that lacked Christian identity, belief, or practice. He put us smack dab in the top 25 in America, and he found that, only, that, he found that 48% of our city lacks any form of Christian identity, belief, or practice. That most of our city walks in darkness is what the statistics tell us. And that's why Jesus says you need to shine as a city within the city. That you've got to look different. The question then is, what do we do? Turn right to 2 Corinthians. Just go a few pages to the right. Paul's going to explain how that's supposed to operate. How do we shine in our neighborhoods? Starting in verse 16, Paul tells us, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. He famously tells us that if anyone is in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are a new creation. And this is what makes the gospel so good, and it's what makes it different than every other world religion. Every other religion says, do these things, believe these things, and it'll help you. Jesus says, just come to me, and I'll change you. You'll be different. Becoming a Christian is not about being a better person. It's about becoming brand new, that you have a new heart with the Spirit of God living in you that gives you new ambition, new passion, new giftedness, and yes, a new calling. Because if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. And Paul says, that's me, that's you. And because of that, he says, we should look at people differently. Go back to verse 16. He said, from now on, therefore, and what's before the therefore? It's everything I just told you. He's speaking in light of the resurrection of Christ and our faith in him. He says, therefore, we now regard no one according to the flesh. To put that in other terms, he says, I don't look at anyone like I used to anymore. He says, I don't judge them by worldly standards, by their outward appearance. I don't write them off. And the reason why is because God's made me new. And part of our newness, it changes the way we look, which is this is what you have to understand is our first point. If you want to see Jesus light up your neighborhood, you have to begin to view others with new eyes. View others with new eyes. He says, we are a new creation so I don't regard others according to the flesh anymore. And likewise, you and I, we have to start looking at people 
differently than the way we currently do. I went out to eat last week after church with my family, and I went to one of those restaurants where you go down the line and they put the stuff on whatever you're ordering. You tell them what toppings, what things you want. And I went down the line. It was busy. It was after church, after church crowd. And I go through it. And I remember the gentleman serving me. He said, do you want cheese on that? And I said, yes, please. And then I said, thank you, sir. It's just kind of a natural southern thing I say, even though he was younger than me. I usually say, thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. That kind of thing. And I said, yes, thank you, sir. And I remember I was moving on to the next little station, and he didn't walk with me. He goes, it's thank you, ma'am. I got a little confused, honestly. It caught me off guard. And I, I looked up again, and he said it again to me. He said, it's thank you, ma'am. I had no idea that he was identifying as a female. And then before I could even get a word out, he said, but I know why, because people like you just hate me anyway. This is what he's saying to me. And I hear him, and I said, I don't hate you. I said, I wasn't trying to offend you. And he said, no, I get it. That's how all of you are. You all hate me and you don't believe it. And he just was stirring it up. And I tried to change the topic and be a little nicer to him. I said, so tell me about your day. How's your day going? He said, I hate it. I said, why do you hate your day? He said, it's just all the church folk coming in. And I said, well, is it because it's so crowded? I mean, at least you're getting lots of business. That's good news. He said, no, it's not the crowd. It's how red this room is right now. He said, it's how red. And he said these words to me, and I illustrate it with this truth. The fact is, he looked at me, and within 10 seconds, he judged me, and he wrote me off because of three words. Thank you, sir. And because of that small little interaction, I was dead to him. Now, I could illustrate that and make him the villain, but the truth is, church, sometimes we're no different. We're not. Sometimes we look at people with a mask or not with a mask, and our blood starts to boil, depending on how you view it. Sometimes when someone says they've had a shot or not had a shot, we write them off, depending on what answer they give. Sometimes somebody will say they either voted for Trump or Biden, and depending on what your ideology is, you hate the other side. Sometimes we see a flag in someone's yard. We see a sign in someone's yard. We see these things, we view, and we judge according to the flesh, and we write them off. We write them off. And when you write them off, what you're doing is you're missing the gospel opportunity you previously had. Because why did Jesus come? We're told, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In church, we must remember Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how dare us judge and write off those that need him when we needed him too? We have to change the way we view people and not judge according to the flesh because when you judge according to the flesh, you miss the disease that's causing the problem. Just a few weeks ago, I mentioned I was at the CU at the pole with my son, with two of my kids at their elementary school. I was leading that time of prayer at our local school. And I mentioned that a few weeks ago. We had a good little group. We came together praying for our community, for our schools. But I remember as I was praying there with all these kids and parents, my child, third child, youngest, four-year-old, he started going nuts during the prayer. 
which I'm just thinking, typical pastor's kid, embarrassing daddy pastor while he's trying to pray. And I hear my son, everybody knows their kids scream. I know it's mine. And he's just going nuts. And I hear Bethany kind of squirming, trying to find him and trying to get him to calm down because he's causing a disruption during the prayer. And he's, I'm praying, trying to go through it. And he's so loud, nothing we can do to make him calm down. And finally, we get through it. And I'm like, Daniel, what on earth was going on? Did you fall? No, no, I didn't fall. I'm like, what happened? Did something go wrong? No, I don't know, I don't know. And he's just screaming, going nuts. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. He's frustrating me. Why are you having a meltdown in a sacred moment? And then a few hours later, you know what we found out? His wrist started to swell up, red. And he clearly had gotten stung by a bee or something. He didn't know what happened. He didn't have the understanding what the source of his pain was. All he knew was that he was hurting. And so often we look at people with outbursts that are doing things we don't like, and we write them off. We write them off because we don't like what they're doing. And the truth is most of them don't even know the source of their pain, that it's sin Sin has separated them from God. Sin has separated them from peace with him. And what they need is the cure that we have. So the first step, if you want to see the city change and your neighborhood change, is your eyes first have to change. You have to view people differently. You have to look at them with new eyes and say, Lord, help me see them the way that you do. Because when God sees them, he loves them. They have intrinsic value He loves them, and we have to fight for that as well. But then Paul says we then have to do something beyond look at them differently. Go to the text in verse 18. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It says, through Christ, he reconciled us. What does that word reconciled mean? It means that he put us at peace. Through Jesus Christ, he put us at peace with God the Father through the shedding of his blood and the brokenness of his body and the resurrection on the third day. We are forgiven and given new life, new opportunity, new future, new hope. And because of that, because Jesus has reconciled, he did all the work for us, he got us into right standing with God, it says now he's entrusted to us. And what did he entrust to us? The message of reconciliation. He says, you're the one that gets to now carry that message of what I did for you. You get to take it with you. Which I love that word in trust because inside that word is trust. To entrust, it means you give trust. I remember a few years ago when I lived in Houston ministering there, I came to Marble Falls just down the road. Because some church members, they owned a beautiful lake house there in Marble Falls, extremely generous. And they told my family, they said, here's the keys. Go enjoy our home. Go enjoy our boat, our jet skis, all the toys. Have a vacation. Go enjoy it. Have a blast. I remember when I went to Marble Falls to enjoy this home that I could never afford and the boat I couldn't buy and all of these things. And they gave me that key. I remember I felt pretty humble when I received it. 
and a little scared because I understood the weight of what I was grabbing, that this was valuable, it was worth a whole lot, that I needed to make sure I was cautious, that I took care of it, that I stewarded it well because it had great value. And this is what Jesus has done for his followers. He's given keys to the kingdom of God through the gospel. He says, here, you take care of this. You hold on to this message and unlock that gate for others. Show them the truth of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm trusting you. And which means all of us in this room, if we want our neighborhoods to change, we have to follow our second point today. We must commit to live our lives on mission. You have to live your life on mission. If you want God to light up your neighborhood, it means you have to start getting to work. You have to live your life on mission. Because I love the way he said it. He said, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He entrusted to us the message of reconciliation which I think it's important you get that we, us language in there because usually we see ministry as a you job, not a me job. In fact, many of you walked in this room and you thought, Jonathan, you're the only minister in here. Wrong. I'm a pastor. God's called me into an office of leadership over his church. If you're in Christ, you're all the ministers. We are all the ministers. In fact, the pastor's job, Ephesians 4.11, is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That if you have the name Christian by your name, you also have the name minister. You might say, but I don't have a church. You do have a restaurant you're about to go to. You do have a job you're going to return to. You have a classroom that you sit in every week. You have people next door in your neighborhood You have somebody that's going to bag your groceries in a couple days. And yes, you'll probably also have somebody that's going to cut you off on I-35. You're going to have all of these people that you're going to have to deal with all week. And God's design is that you're the minister, that you're the one that handles that. You're the one that represents him in that place, which is why in verse 20 we're told, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Which leads me to our final point today. If you want to see God light up your neighborhood, you've got to embrace your new title. You've got to embrace it. And what is your new title? Ambassador. And what's an ambassador when you think about it? I love Paul's word there. Ambassadors represent people higher than themselves. That they don't just go to places because those people wanted them. No, they wanted the leader they represent. But the leader can't go, so they send someone else to represent them. So an ambassador represents a higher power, which is the whole point of our citizenship in heaven. We walk on this earth representing a higher authority in Jesus Christ. We represent a king in his kingdom when we go about our daily business as ambassadors. But ambassadors also speak on behalf of their king. They don't say whatever they feel like saying. They say what their king would want them to say. That's what an ambassador does. Which if you want to talk for the Lord this week, you better start to understand his words. This is why this book matters. 
Because this book, the more we read it, the more it gets into us and it transforms everything, including our words. That we speak on behalf of the king, which means we have to have the king's words, but also ambassadors are sent by their king into strategic locations. Ambassadors don't just show up wherever they want to. They're sent. They're sent to a destination the king wanted them in. And make no mistake about it when you leave here. You might say, I'm just going somewhere I feel like. No, you're being sent. God's sending you sovereignly wherever you're heading. In fact, the neighborhood you live in, you don't live there just because you could afford the rent or the mortgage. You live there because God sent you there as an ambassador and minister for him. That we have to change the way we view our homes and our neighborhoods. Wherever you go, you're going in the name of the Lord which is why here at ABC, we want to bless every home. In fact, tomorrow, you're gonna to get an email if you're in our church membership with a lot of details to what I'm gonna say briefly here right now. But our church is partnering with an application. It's called Bless Every Home. It's an app that already existed. We just stumbled upon it. But it's an evangelism tool to help keep us accountable and to live on mission, to have new eyes, to embrace our new title. And this application, we're going to encourage you to download. And what does this application do? It actually does several things. Number one, you register your account with our church and with yourself. It will populate your neighborhood, all the homes. Through public listings, it will show the owners of all the homes, the names there, according to public record. And why do you need those names? Number one, so you can start praying for them. So you can begin praying for your neighbors by name. If we want to see salvation and light come into our neighborhoods, it starts with prayer. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my, des my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul said, I pray all the time that they'll be saved. And our job every day is to pray. And in fact, on this application, it will give you a push notification every day of five new families to pray for by name. You can document those prayers. And the idea is you go from prayer to care on the app. And what is care? It means you've actually introduced yourself. They know your name, you know theirs. You're starting to hear their story. You're helping them when they're in need. You're simply building a relationship. And it goes from prayer to care to share, because our ultimate goal is to share Jesus Christ, it's to share what God has done in our lives. And this application gives us a mechanism to simply hold account, accountable to ourselves our progress within our neighborhoods. And as we pray, as we care, and as we share the hope of Christ, we believe some of those homes are going to be lit up, that they're going to come to know him. And church, I encourage you tomorrow Look for that application, download it, register it, and then begin ministering through it and see if God won't make an impact through your neighborhood, through you. When we moved to Austin about a year and a half ago, it caught me off guard because I'd forgotten. I came from Houston, which is a completely different city. Houston, I remember there were lights everywhere, street lights, highway lights, just lights everywhere. You couldn't find a dark corner in, in Houston, Texas, it felt like. But then as I rolled into Central Texas, what I noticed is what y'all already know. We don't have as many street lamps. We don't have as many lights. In fact, even my own neighborhood on the streets, there are no street lamps, which kind of caught me off guard. 
And why is that? It's because here in central Texas, we are embracing darkness. We want to keep things the way it naturally was. We want that darkness. But the truth is, many homes have also embraced spiritual darkness. They don't want that darkness. They just don't know how to get out of it. But you do. And God wants to bless every home and light up your neighborhood for Jesus Christ. But it will only happen if you see yourself as part of the solution.